There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt. Bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop, Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet, chasing bear. March 28th, Bentonville, Arkansas, we're having the Ozark Black Bear Bonanza. If you're within 12 hours of Northwest Arkansas, you need to get in your vehicle and drive here. March 28th, we're having a bear fat rendering demonstration that starts at 2 o'clock. Bear biologist panel where the bear biologists from Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma will be there answering questions. We're having a live Bear Hunting Magazine podcast complete with live music in an owl hooting contest. Did you hear what I said? I want the nation's top owl hooters at this thing, and the winner of the owl hooting contest gets a first light, uh, first light package, a sheep hunting of the south first light package. Thirdly, we're having a storytelling event. The event lasts from 2 to 9 p.m., Bentonville, Arkansas. You have to go to our social media to get all the details, but you can buy tickets. Hey, check out our buddies at W Hunting Supply. If you're getting any kind of dog-related stuff, hound stuff, Garmin stuff, leashes, collars, anything and everything, check out our buddies at W. Also, with spring coming, 
check out our buddies at North. I have a lot of buddies. Colby tells me not to say buddies all the time. Check out our friends at Northwoods Bear Products. They're making the best commercial bear scents on the market. And lastly, our buddies at, man, they are our buddies, Colby. Our buddies at the Western Bear Foundation, hunting conservation organization out west representing bear hunters. You're going to enjoy this podcast with my buddy, Brandon Butler. He's a unique guy. He's got a unique voice inside of conservation. And uh, if you listen close, I think you'll learn some stuff. I know that I did. We are at Driftwood Acres in Shannon County, Missouri. That's that's right. Yeah. We're uh, from where we're at right now, we're surrounded by couple hundred thousand acres of of public land in the ozarks of east are we in southeastern missouri or south central missouri kind of right on the dividing line i would say you know towards the eastern side but right in the heart of the missouri ozarks yeah yeah man the the creeks i love the river systems and the watersheds in these ozarks they truly are special and when I say in the middle of the Missouri Ozarks, you know, people from all over the country will think of Lake of the Ozarks or Branson, which both, of course, are in the Ozarks. But when I say that, I, I mean like a real wilderness. Yeah. I feel like we're in the most remote part of the state of Missouri right now. Yeah. Yeah. Least populated county in Missouri, you said? No, I, I don't know if that's true. I heard you say that uh, last night. It's the poorest county. Okay. So okay. what it is, is it's dropped from the third poorest county in the state to the first, unfortunately. And uh, it's 25th poorest county in America. So wow. we're in competition with a lot of uh, coal country in Appalachia. Yeah. So dealing with uh, a lot of poverty issues. And really, there's just not an industry going on down here yeah. anymore. My yeah. friends work in the lead mine, and you know they turn eighteen and they hope to get a job at the lead mine. And my good buddy that works there, I, you know, won't name his name because he he hates the fact that he's got to take showers multiple times per day and mm. wash the poison off of himself. Mm. That's a hard way to yeah make a living. Yeah, yeah. So it's such a beautiful part of the world. I mean, as you said, there's over two hundred thousand acres of public land in this county. Wow. We've got the elk restoration going on. We've got the Ozark National Scenic Riverways, which is current river in Jack's Fork. It's a 85,000 acre national park hmm. that courses along 135 miles of river corridor. But in true Missouri fashion, it's a nat- it's a national park that you can hunt. Right on. So it's amazing that you can set off in a canoe or in a jet boat or anything and get down the river and pull over on a gravel bar and chase a turkey you hear gobbling up on the ridge yeah or you can set up camp and deer hunt for a few days on the public land it's it's really really special to have those kind of water rights to be able to go down river and camp where you like and and the other thing that i'm really proud of is the fact that well missouri has this program called stream teams where citizens band together and it's kind of like adopt a highway, but mm-hmm. you adopt a stream or a section right. of a river. And we did one for Current River two years in a row uh, with this youth group that I led called the Conservation Leadership Corps. There wasn't enough trash to make it worth our while. So we had to move to a dirtier river. <laughs> what a terrible problem to have. Wasn't it? It was beautiful to think like people are actually down here taking care of the resource. Right. And it's 
it's very well protected and it's very accessible and it's truly a national treasure that flies under the radar. Yeah. Well, you guys are hearing the voice of Brandon Butler. And Brandon is, uh, we're at his cabin down here and a really beautiful place. Uh, Brandon would be a hard, pretty hard guy to describe in terms of if you were just trying to say what he does. It, uh, he does a whole lot of stuff. Brandon, now I, I originally knew you as an outdoor writer. So you, you write a lot of articles, write some uh, newspaper columns, written all kind of stuff, all conservation-based Um you were the executive director of the Conservation Federation of Missouri. Yeah, for five years. Yes, and uh, so anyway, pretty pretty interesting history that you got, and and currently you're working for Raceline, Raceline Alternative Energy, and we're gonna we're gonna get back to that here in just a little bit. So I don't even want to go into that, but it's a a, a really unique. And uh, forward-thinking energy group, which I want to hear about. Yes. Um, tell me about uh, man. Tell me about your place here. So how did how, this? This is like you. 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 We. We talked about Fred Bear's uh, place, Grouse Haven. Mm-hmm. I thought about uh, when I pulled up here. I thought about Aldo Leopold's place up. In, I don't remember what he called it, but you know he had a he had a, a cabin up somewhere that they restored and. He anyway, just, he just called it the shack. Yeah, and it's all described in the Sand County Almanac. Yeah, yeah. But tell me about your place here. Well, it's a dream come true, really. Uh, I always joked that my first cabin was under the stairwell in my parents' basement when I was a boy. You know, I had a <laughs> camouflage GI Joe sleeping bag, and I uh, hammered together a few pieces of wood to make my own gun case, and had my pellet gun and BB gun nice. in there, and my slingshot and. My outdoor life magazines and field and stream magazines and bow hunter magazines and that's where this fire really started. And did your dad hunt? No, no. My my dad um, was of that Vietnam era. He was, mm-hmm. he didn't end up in Vietnam, but he was an MP uh, garden people that came back. It was a tough role for him. And after that, he he'd gone out west with his dad, and um, it just didn't stick for him. He grew mm-hmm. up small game hunting pheasant and rabbit and. Things like that, but no, he's a he's an incredible woodworker. I mean, he's responsible for a lot of what you're seeing around this cabin. And I mean, I couldn't have a better dad if I if I picked one, you know. Yeah. And uh, but we just don't share that love of fishing and hunting. But his brother, my uncle Tom, who I'm getting ready to go down to Florida and uh, Osceola turkey hunt with, you mm-hmm. know, he's doing his snowbird thing now. He's got a place at Lake Okeechobee, and uh, my both of my grandpas were very instrumental and. I tell the story like one grandpa was very, very family oriented. He was actually my step grandpa, but married to my grandma before I was born, never knew my biological grandfather on that side. And um, I think he'd been through a rough divorce and so had my grandma. And when they found each other, that was it. They were holding on, not letting go. And, and all of his fishing trips from that point forward from about 50 years old were with her, not at all. Mm. And then I kind of got put in the mix and, that was beautiful because I got to see like this love, like genuine love between yeah. two people that really found a second chance in life with each other. And that the older I get, the more I, I realize just how powerful that was. But then my dad's dad, he was more like he owned the family business before my dad did and he owned it after his dad did. So 
you know, he had a lot of responsibility and he needed that reprieve. And him and his buddies back in the 70s would pile into an RV. And I've got some old, we, we had some old films made into a DVD, you know, and mm. they just played cowboy. Like they would strap a gun to their hip and drink a case of beer a day and hit the mountains of Wyoming and Colorado and kill mule deer and run jeeps off mountains and whatever they had to do to just <laughs> and they killed some big mule deer they killed didn't they? some giants there's a probably a probably a boone and crockett yeah no kidding yeah he's a stomp he's a stomper he was big, 1972 in meeker colorado i bet he's 30 inches wide at the widest point there i, I hope i have a grandkid someday that'll accept all my mounts when i die because that's what happened you know he, yeah he passed on and uh they were nobody wanted them so i said mm. there's no way i'm not taking all of them you know so yeah so anyways, I you know, I had the exposure in all these different ways. Like one grandpa showed me how important it is to be with family. The other grandpa showed me how important it is to just get away with your buddies. Yeah. You know. Even for short trips like we've had the last two days, you know, it's been beautiful and so I've had a lot of great influences and, and now I try to pass on kind of a collection of that to to the youth in my life. Yeah. And so you you got this land you, right now. You've got forty something acres down here. Yeah, so I um, built I, this cabin. I moved on from my uh, under the stairwell hunting camp to a, a camper. Me and my cousin Derek bought it in college. It was called Delilah Jones out of a Grateful <laughs> Dead song, "The Mother of Twins." It was five hundred dollars, sixteen foot, nineteen seventy two Scotty Sportsman, mm. greatest thing I've ever owned. And we hooked that <laughs> thing up and drug it all over the country. Took it to memphis and may music festival but it was our deer camp more than anything and um just that like freedom of having a place to stay and sleep and we're hunting northwest indiana like we were both at purdue at the time in west lafayette and just the idea of having that camp and then like the dream just kept building and getting bigger and when i got to missouri i went hardcore into waterfall hunting and, and there's a lot that happened between that camper and missouri of course i lived in montana for a while i spent a year in colorado mm. And um, finally ended up settling in Missouri, and I eventually bought into a 200-acre uh, duck marsh with seven other guys. And it was okay, but there's a lot of work that goes into managing a duck marsh. And some of these guys were retired, and they were expecting you up there on a Thursday to be working on food and habitat. And as much as I wanted to do it, my life just wasn't conducive. So I kind of grew frustrated with that partnership, and, and lo and behold, Governor Jay Nixon um, decided at the end of his term that he was going to build this state park down here in Shannon County called Echo Bluff. And it was contentious uh, with some of the locals and, and some of the county officials that didn't want any more public lands or any more state money dumped into uh, you know a state park. So I kind of got called in to help build some positive because you work with the yeah just my work with the conservation federation i've got this large platform in this newspaper column and so i came down and and was part of part of this park early you know long before it opened and saw the construction and i really appreciated how he said he wasn't here to take over the market he was here to prime the market and the first time i i stepped into sinking creek which is what flows through echo bluff and you know i don't talk about it all that often but if, if you find echo bluff you're going to find the creek and we're up the creek a little ways and yeah um, i decided i wanted to be here this is it you know after everything that i considered deer turkey public lands open space rural remote uh, affordable 
I, I got a, a plat book and a former state representative friend of mine, and we kind of identified some properties. And I picked up the phone and called a guy and talked him into selling me the land. You know, he hadn't been here in five years, and it was just fortuitous and, and worked out. And over about two years' time, I, I cleared some land and tore down an old house, repurposed a lot of the materials, and then and then constructed what you're sitting in today. And it's a true dream come true. And it, there's nothing fancy about it. It's just, it, my friends call it my man castle, you know. It's, it's pretty fancy, man. I'd call it <laughs> on the borderline of fancy for a man castle. Well, there's so many things that I'm proud of. Like the ceiling is uh, the roof from the old cabin that I tore down. Right. So it's the rusted corrugated metal. Yeah. And then much of the interior is done in, in, in red cedar. Yeah, but those were scraps that come from a stave mill where they're 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 building these uh, like large uh, posts. So they're shaving down to get to that, and, and that's very Ozarkian. Yeah, it looks great, Eastern Red Cedar. So I love it, man, and and my kids appreciate it, and and come down with their friends now, and as they're getting a little older, they're seeing the value of having wilderness to go wander off in, and yeah, stomp in the creek and. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. We've killed some great deer here and had some awesome. Camps I'm impressed and with some the turkeys. Impressed with the deer. So, well, we won't talk. We won't tell people about your deer and turkeys, though. It's okay. I mean, <laughs> we're not going to tell them right where they are, but I, I I don't mind dispelling the rumor that there aren't any big deer in the Ozarks. Yeah, because there's some really good deer in the Ozarks, and yeah. there's a lot of public land. See, I don't mind saying that because it's important to me that people come here and stimulate this economy. Yeah. You know, my friends down here, they struggle to make a living. And yeah. I'll tell you one thing, though. If you're willing to work, it's a wide open market. Like the the, the opportunity to, to work hard and make money down here is there. It's just that, you know, it takes a long time to get established in a culture where you're not from. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a beautiful part. It's a beautiful part of the world. You know, the way that I've heard it described, Brandon, in, it, at least in Arkansas, and I think it would be the same in the Missouri Ozarks, is that the Ozarks were culturally and geographically isolated, basically until the 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 inter, the road systems in the U.S. improved. And, uh, I mean, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I mean, the, the, the Ozarks in Arkansas, I mean, it really was just this pocket of rough mountainous regions that uh, a lot of writers said that I read something the other day that said it was talking about Ozarkers and it said isolation is their religion and uh, ah, I can't, it's, it's a beautiful quote but it was basically just like these uh, these people intentionally didn't want people messing with them and that's that's kind of a the mentality down here which can be negative in terms of progression of good things but in some ways it's it's it can be good if you're if you're if you're keeping bad stuff out but you know there's certainly both sides to it and i yeah. i see and experience both sides all the time um like so many midwesterners <clears throat> um when i was in college at purdue i i thought that denver was some kind of uh holy land yeah you know i thought that i was going to move out to denver and and become this mountain man and chase elk and and you know Jeremiah Johnson it up mm-hmm. and pretty much moved out there sight unseen for a job after college and I got there and it was a big smoggy city full of people and congestion and 
what kind of drove me nuts about it, you know, and I, I laugh now and I look back on myself acting the same way I see so many young people acting today is thinking you knew what you were doing. What's frustrating about that culture, or at least that manufactured culture that's just recently kind of existed out there is that people act like they want to go out there for this individualism and to do exactly what I said, you know, this mountain lifestyle. Yeah. So they all think they're going to be these like reformed uh, mountain people, right, from their Midwestern roots, and they buy the same North Face as everybody else, and they drive the same Subaru as everybody else, and they start talking like everybody else, like, you're not happy, you're stoked, you know, <laughs> nothing's cool, it's rad, and, mm. it, and it's just, it, to me, it all just seems not genuine, and mm -hmm. you come down here and people couldn't be any more genuine. They don't care. Like, they'll just tell you. There's this, like, there's this, like, rough individualism and, and kind of, like you said, the, the mountains are hard and it's hard living down here and it takes hard people to be able to do yeah. it. And, and like, the guy, we had a fella come over this morning, what do you think, maybe 70 years old? Yeah, push, I'd say he's probably pushing 70. And he's going to do the rock on my, on my wall. And we talked, he can't find help. You know, it's like, yeah. so these new generations and uh, it's all over the country from rich people you know, to poor people. He was an old fashioned guy socially. The fact that he came in, he never, he didn't know you. And now you were really hospitable to him. This was old stonemason yeah. that we're talking about. Came in this morning to look at some stonework brands done. And he sat down and talked to us for 45 minutes. Had coffee. On his, he was working. Yeah. And he, and he wasn't being lazy. He was being polite. He's been great. I mean, it wasn't like he was trying to. I mean, he's the boss, so he could do whatever he wanted. But he sat and he he told. I mean, he just it, it was it was almost a social obligation to sit down and have coffee with us. And he got the job. You know, yeah. he's gonna he's gonna get a good job out of it, and I'm gonna get good work out of him. I feel, yeah. and it was a a fair transaction of time. You know what? He really when he was sitting there, I was thinking how familiar. I feel with a guy like that. I mean, just in terms of he he is he is the the good of this part of the country. Absolutely. Hard working. Every you know, he's he's he said he worked with uh he had two guys that worked with him. But those old stonemasons, man, there's no cheating when you're a stonemason. I mean, you everything you get, you work hard for it. He's gathered rock all he sells and gathers rock. I used to actually love to do that. There's something really fulfilling about uh, taking a natural resource straight off the ground and and being able to turn that into a living money. I mean, you know, there, there's there's something kind of powerful about that, especially when it's sustainable and something that works. But anyway, I like that old guy. I like him too. I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to have him. Like, that's what's also so cool about this place is when I sit here and look, I see things that other people don't because I know <laughs> who helped me with that or who did this. And, and how that came to be. And yeah. and now I'll always be able to associate really the last thing to do interior wise is build this 20 foot wall that goes up to the peak of the vaulted ceilings that the fireplace sits on. And now I'll remember the fact that that old man did it and I'll feel yeah. good about it as long as I have this place. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon, what's your, what is your passion inside of outdoors and conservation? I mean, like you, you've got a, a, rich history what what really makes you tick when it comes to even even hunting yeah I'm, I'm a generalist big time when it comes to hunting and fishing and 
I, I often say now that I showed up at the Conservation Federation back in 2014 as a hunter and an angler. And those five years molded me into a conservationist. Mm. Uh, I didn't know anything about native grasses or trees or water quality testing or the things mm. that afford me the opportunities to pursue my passions of hunting and fishing. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's whitetail deer and turkeys. You know, I, I hunt anything. I've killed a couple bears, uh, pheasants, quail, ducks. I've, I'll do it all. Like, there's nothing you can say, let's go do this today. And I'd, if it's outdoors, I'll be like, yep, let's go. Yeah. You know, for fishing, I grew up on warm water lakes, you know, largemouth bass, crappie, and bluegill. Uh, grew up going with my grandparents uh, to Minnesota and uh, Wisconsin after walleye and yellow perch, which is the best tasting freshwater fish I think you can get is yellow perch. Yellow perch. Yeah, it's my absolute. It's like a. It's like a softer version of walleye. It's just mm. incredibly flaky white meat, mm. and you can only lightly dust it before you fry it. It's it, <clears throat> it, the big fishery on Lake Michigan. So I grew up about. 10 miles south of the Lake Michigan shore there by Gary, Indiana. I'm from Crown, mm. Crown Point, Indiana. And uh, there was a commercial fishery that really hurt that uh, population. And then we had a couple other things happen with invasives. Uh, the zebra mussel came in and clarified the water to the point that there were no, there's no food sources for the, the smaller fry and the, the yellow perch eat. So it's just Lake Michigan's like a Petri dish of, natives and invasives the salmon mm. none of that belongs there you know and it's right it's changed dramatically so i don't get the yellow perch nearly like i did when i was a kid and we'd go out mm. and catch them but so anything fishing wise and then you know i i try to go down these paths i became a full-blown traditional bow hunter for a while yep i've backed off that just because of time and and the inability to practice as much as i need to then I was never going to spin fish again. I was just going to be a hardcore fly fisherman. Now I've kind of backed off of that. I saw you spin fishing yesterday. I do a lot of it anymore. <laughs> you know, at this point in my life, I just want to catch fish, and sometimes it's just more conducive to throwing a spinning rod. But mm -hmm. if we go up to the Upper Current River and rip streamers for big browns, that's that's pretty phenomenal. But nothing turns my crank like catching smallmouth on a fly rod mm -hmm. in these crystal clear creeks down here. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So that's it, man. Well, we had a good time yesterday fishing. So we were we were we were fishing on the Current River with uh, his name's Billy Smith. Yeah, he's a phenomenal guy. You know, you need more people like Billy yeah. in your life because he's just genuinely always happy. You know, yeah. like I'm a very fortunate person. You know, I've I've got I'm rich in so many different ways, and yet I still find days where I just don't want to be talked to or messed with and. I'm grumpy for whatever reason. I've never seen Billy that way. Yeah. And you go get in a boat with this guy, and you just realize like how lucky we all are to have mm -hmm. these resources and to be outside. Uh, he spent 35 years working for the Park Service. So this Ozark National Scenic Riverways is, of course, without contention because it came into existence in the late 50s and early 60s through a lot of use of eminent domain. Right. So that caused some some horrible sentiment towards the park early on. Yeah, and and some of those people are still first generation people that are alive and living around here. Mm. So they're even though they got paid, you know, no one stole their land like you hear. Right. They were paid a fair fair market value for it. 
Uh, and some held out and wouldn't sell. There's some holdings in there. Of Are they able to do that with in, eminent domain? Yeah, but it can't be transferred. So it's like yours until you die, I guess. Is that right? I believe. I believe. So there's some holdings in there. And uh, long story short, though, imagine like how you try to impress your father or your grandfather. So if you were raised in this culture of people saying, you know, that park is horrible. They stole our land, you know. Yeah. The next generation, you would think it would die down, but I think it can actually be the opposite. I think the yeah. animosity grows. And mm -hmm. like if grandpa didn't like something, I'm going to not like it even more. And that's a problem for this park down here. So these mm. employees, even the locals, you know, Billy is one of them, for example, who had to balance his love and affection for this park and his job with his life of being a resident of this area and listening to both sides. So he was an incredible ambassador for the parks and still is and mm. uh, learned the river just intimately. And now he's applying that knowledge to his guide service called scenic river guide yeah. service, I believe. And you can find just scenic river fishing or scenic river guide yeah. service, Billy Smith. And, but man, like what's interesting is that everybody wants to smallmouth fish when it's seventy five and sunny and drink a beer and but in the wintertime these smallmouth all bunch up in these deep pools and he's just got them figured out. He knows where they're yeah. hiding and he knows what to throw them and yeah. we we fished about two and a half hours and boated I think close to twenty fish and yeah. um if it wasn't for Hal, we'd only boated probably ten. Yeah, well he had the Hal was cheating us, man. <laughs> he uh, he was up at the good part of the boat. He was he was y'all didn't see it, but he was elbowing me out of spots. So uh, <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> We're talking about Hal Herring here. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. It was awesome yesterday. Beautiful country. Absolutely. I'm totally impressed with this part of the Ozarks, and I've never been to this part of the Ozarks. Just I'm never been here. So glad you made it up and. Um, being the bear man that you are, I'm I'm happy to tell you that I've had a couple bears on this piece of dirt. Yeah, and get some pictures. Man, of that's them. a massive win for conservation to hear that. I it mean, really, really is. is. People don't. I, to me, it's it, it's so close to home because the bears in southern Missouri, absolutely. And I'm not, and we're not trying to take credit for this. This is just the truth. They, you know, they came from Arkansas. Oh yeah, take credit for it. I mean, no, they, nobody denies I mean, that. I mean, yeah, yeah, but they. They they're they're moving north into the Ozarks into suitable habitat and it's here and uh, you know there's a breeding population of bears here and they're you know they're projecting you know sometime in the future potentially a small regulated hunt in the near future yeah so it was pretty amazing uh, I got to go bear trapping with the Department of Conservation and and they've really upped their uh, bear management and study yeah. efforts. And just in the last year, they've determined that they were way off on their count. And when they thought we had, you know, roughly 250 to 300 bears, the new number is closer to 500 to 600 bears. Mm. And they've always said that we'll start a regulated season around 500 bears. So this year also is very uh, miraculous is we're going to have our first elk hunt in mm. I don't know if we've ever had a legal elk hunt in Missouri. I'd have to go back and look. But I know an elk hasn't been shot in the state in over 100 years, more yeah. than that, 150 years or something, when we extirpated mm. them. So they're back, and they're they're not far from here, man. Like, uh, if you, they're at Peck Ranch, which is just east of Eminence, which is the nearest little town to where we're at. Okay. 
if you look at like the diagram of how the herd is developing their range, it looks like a very distinct teardrop mm. with the tip of the teardrop being north and the ball of it being to the south. So the herd as a whole is moving south, but there's this spike that goes up into the forest and it's not it's not five miles from where we're sitting. Does does the Missouri population overlap with the Arkansas elk population of the buffalo? No, we had one cow take off for Arkansas and they shot her. They don't want to you know, with CWD yeah. and everything that's happening, like the herd is trying to be contained and yeah, yeah. Um, with your guys's horrible CWD problem that you've yeah. got going on in the yeah. Ponca Valley and we don't want any of that. And we already know that it's going to move up across the, you know, down in like Stone and Taney counties in the southwest corner of Missouri. Like that's one of our new CWD and endemic zones. And it's unfortunate, you know, that's, we could do a whole podcast on chronic wasting disease and, and, you know, how dangerous it truly is. But it's unfortunate that things happened long before we were aware of what was right. going on. Because, you know, that's conservation too. We, we're doing things right now, Clay, that we are probably out there promoting and thinking we're like helping. And 50 years from now, we're going to look back on that and say, oh man, like how did we, how did we think that was the right yeah. thing to do? And That's the trend of history, isn't it? It absolutely is. And uh, you're trying to do better, but occasionally you're actually doing harm. And, and by trailering around cervids, those being deer, elk, moose, any, any ungulate in the cervid family, you know, CWD was spread. And yeah. uh, I blame a lot of it on the captive industry. And there's no secret that I've had my battles with those people. But there's also a lot of blame to be placed on the transportation of carcasses by hunters coming back from out west. There is, of course, natural movement from predators mm-hmm. moving it. And I mean, it's it's not a disease in the sense like a virus or a bacteria. It's a, this misfolded prion that is almost impossible to kill and can live in yeah. the soil for ever. And so all kinds of problems. Crazy man. stuff. Let's focus on positive stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think the key issues of, what, what are the key issues inside of conservation that people should be focused on? In this part of the world, I think the key issue in conservation universally is is making people understand the importance of caring. I mean, right now we're so fortunate and lucky to be living in an era of good times. You know, mm-hmm. we we look back on on times and and think those were the good old days of this or that. But really, if you look back to the early 1900s, those were not the good old days. Mm-hmm. Here in Missouri. There was an estimated 400 deer and 2,000 turkeys in 1935. Wow. And that's when the Conservation Federation was formed. Citizens uh, rallied together and said, this this system that we have is not working. So it's a really phenomenal story in the sense that 75 citizens gathered, you know, and that's a rough number. No, There's no roster. That's one of the, like, real disappointing pieces of this history is that there's no roster of who was there, but mm. there was a gentleman named Bill Crawford who lived to be 99 and a half and passed away a couple of years ago. And he was 17 at that meeting. So he can tell you about it. And, mm. uh, you know, Starker Leopold was there, Ding Darling, who went on to basically create yeah. the duck stamp and founded the National Wildlife Federation, all kind. he was FDR's personal friend. Is he from Missouri? No, he was from Iowa, Des Moines. Yeah, yeah. He was from Des Moines, okay. Iowa. But he was involved with the stuff in Missouri? He was a leader of it. And while he was at this meeting on September 10th, 1935, he doodled 
a sketch of a bass coming out of the water and eating a mayfly and a duck coming in to land on this pond. And he, it's, it's amazing. He just drew huh. it. And the original hangs in the executive director's office at CFM. No way. At some point, it, it deserves to be in the uh, Ding Darling National Wildlife Museum, which is down on Sanibel Island in Florida. Mm. It, it's the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, but there's, like, of course, a little museum there. Or I don't know if you call it a museum, but some kind yeah. of – it's a building yeah. with stuff in it. It's related <laughs> to him. And, building with cool stuff. And it, it should be there, I think, eventually, and – so there's these like legends of conservation. Aldo Leopold was involved. Starker actually came down here and, uh, and, and lived for a while and started in on the turkey counts in the 1930s. And they call it the Leopold Cabin. It's on a natural area. Uh, Caney Mountain, it's called. And uh, I had an opportunity to sleep in there, but chickened out. It hadn't been <laughs> cleaned in 50 <laughs> years. And mm. we, we got there like after dark. We were Me and my buddy Tyler, who's the new director of Conservation Federation, and um, we got in there, man. We didn't have time to shoot the rats out, and so <laughs> we decided to get a hotel. But there's this uh, rich, crazy, cool history, and 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 things were so bad in the 1930s, and for the last 85 years, not only in Missouri but beyond, we've put so much into restoration efforts yeah. that this modern generation, like you and I, we're we're about six months apart in age, so. We've been fortunate to never know hardship when it comes to right. deer and turkey populations. Right. And well, for me, that's not actually true. Turkey, like where I grew up in northern Indiana, there were no turkeys when I was a kid. Mm. And mm. now they're everywhere. So mm. to actually see a species that I care a lot about brought back and, and yeah. to understand the value of that restoration and what it does not only, you know, economically for these areas where people are coming to the turkey hunt like the Ozarks and like the Washita's, you know, people travel to spend money in these impoverished areas. But it's also just the like intrinsic value of having a spring season. Mm -hmm. And that's what Turkey's so great. You know, we hunt all fall and for the first 25 years of my hunting life, it was like a half a year thing. And now like I put the deer rifle away and I get the Turkey shotgun out, you know, and yeah, I love it. Yeah. I like what you said that, the biggest thing we can do is care. You know, the the problem with prosperity is that people become ungrateful and can quickly forget the hardship from which they came. You know, really, that's the, I mean, a trend inside of society is that, you know, we're the most prosperous nation in the world, and yet we are, our culture is riddled with crisis and ungrateful, unhappy people that don't, you know, it, it, it's kind of the same way can be in conservation. I mean, what describe to me what you mean by people caring i mean just just pe- to me what i hear you saying is just people understanding and having a and that understanding gives just a whole new perspective on what's happening yeah so a lot of people will talk about that the greatest concern for conservation should be apathy the right yeah yeah people sit back and and they don't engage because there's so many deer there's fish in the river you know, it's good. It's fixed. I can be apathetic about it. Yeah. I'm going to add ignorance to that as well. And, and I mean that in the true definition of ignorance and the fact that people are just not educated about what's happening. Yeah. So there are attacks on conservation going on right now in the state house in Missouri that would upset the entire system that we have. I mean, this system is so well renowned that it has its own name, the Missouri model of conservation, which 
is really rooted in the fact that our department operates outside of the purview of the legislature, Mm -hmm. meaning that we have authority vested in a commission that's appointed by the governor and approved by the Senate. And really, um, the commission's not without its flaws, but they allow the science to make the decisions. You know, we have trained biologists making decisions, and the commission ultimately approves. We also have uh, the conservation sales tax, which Arkansas and Minnesota are really the only two states that have kind of replicated. So you guys are reaping the benefits of that as well. So there's dedicated funding. But you were talking about your sportsman's card and how many species and privileges you get from that. Yeah. That's because you have that dedicated funding. If you yeah. didn't, that, those prices would go up significantly. And what, what would be the alternative to that type of... Um, wildlife management government control like because yeah. because in arkansas we we do the same thing and we may have got it from missouri you did but it's run ran by commission so what tell me what the yeah the but your commission your commission can still be overruled by the legislature okay so i i was governor mitch daniels constituent services guy in the indiana department of natural resources in 2008 and 2009 so i worked in the executive office of a state game agency uh, I answered a lot of hate mail, you know, mm-hmm. and, and concerns about conservation. So it was uh, it was interesting to see that no matter how many letters came in, there's only like maybe 20 topics. So once I had written my response letters, you know, you knew how to address these issues and <laughs> concerns and and the ridiculousness of them. Now, for example, the Indiana Department of Natural Resources did a study, a social survey, if you will, on whether or not rifles should be allowed in Indiana for deer hunting. Mm. When I was growing up, they were not. It was shotguns and muzzleloaders only. So we grew up hunting with side hammer, and this is before inlines too, so we're hunting with side hammer muzzleloaders or smoothbore shotguns. Like Mm -hmm. the advent of the fully rifled shotgun barrel, it had happened, but not to the point that it had been mass produced. You had to get like a, I remember like saving my money to get a Hastings barrel. Because that would mm. take my knuckleballs and turn them into fastballs that I'd been <laughs> throwing at deer. And um, so forever, that was just the way you, you deer hunted, right? Well, the NRA made a big push financially to allow rifles in the deer season. Now, there was all the typical stories started flying around. If you People are going to get killed. Indiana's so flat. It's so populated. And that's the argument in Illinois, southern Wisconsin, southern Minnesota, parts of Ohio, these other states where they don't allow rifles. Hmm. But this money got injected. And if you get involved in politics and you're around it long enough, you learn the fact that the answer to your question is money. Hmm. No matter what that question is, just peel a few layers back of that onion and you're going to get to the root cause and it's money. Hmm. So money's injected into this. And the Department of Natural Resources surveys citizens. They say they do not want rifles, overwhelmingly. Uh, let's just keep things the way they are because people are adverse to change to begin with. The legislature overrode that. The legislature had a, uh, they had, you know, they had a, a obligation to the people that were padding their pockets. Yeah. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah. They're getting paid to write legislation in favor of people that are making campaign contributions. Yeah. I'm not going to do it to you. I'm not going to go all political on you because you know how deep in the rabbit hole I'll go. But that's just the truth. With yes. enough money, you can influence legislation to override science, whether that be natural science or social science. 
And that's just one example of how enough money can make the legislature make a decision that's adverse to what the citizens said they wanted. Yeah. Now, nothing happened, and I'm glad it happened. It ended up being all right. So it's a bad example if I want to make a case for the fact that they should never be in control. There yeah. hasn't been any increase in accidents. I don't know how it's impacted the harvest. That was the other argument. Now you can shoot deer. Everything up there, you know, you're hunting like fence rows and little woodlots and deer coming out at 300 yards. And they used to have to get to 100 yards. Now you can pick them off with a 30 out 6 Yeah. 300 yards. So, so that's what's so beautiful about this Missouri model is that those decisions lie in the hands of scientists. And, yeah. And, so we've got it so good, you know, but people are ignorant to the fact that how good they have it. They don't well, know. Listen, in Arkansas, that's all we know. And most people, most hunters probably wouldn't even understand how the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission operates. And so they hear a government appointed commission, which has its issues too. <clears throat> Sometimes you, you know, wish there was different things going on in the commission, but it's better. It's way better than a whole bunch of people that probably don't know or don't care about conservation making a decision, I feel like. My argument against the commission, and I'm not shy to say this, and, uh, and I'm, I'm talking about friends of mine. I know all these commissioners, and but they're all, they're all rich white millionaires, every they, one of them. Yeah, and, and that's what you hear, and I hear that too. It's the truth. Like, they're it, government appointees who made serious campaign contributions and got these sweet jobs. Yeah, they're not paid. It's a volunteer position. Right. What, the, how long is their term in Missouri? Uh, I think it's six years. It's six yeah. years. Yeah, they have six, a seven-year term. And, and if you if you really, and there's a guy on the commission right now that's in his second term. You know, twelve years in charge, and and that's twenty-five percent of the decision making of a two hundred million dollar budget. They're not putting a guy like me or you on that commission, you know, because we're not we're not capable of providing the the benefit to get it, you know, and that's unfortunate. I think yeah. if I was governor, I would. But is that would, better than 75 guys who maybe don't know conservation making decisions? hundred percent. And it wouldn't be 75 guys. Or you however many is in your. 163 state reps and 34 state senators. And almost none of them hunt and fish, you know, like the way Assuming we Assuming that your governor is appointing people that at least have some. They like the, they like the outdoors. Yeah. You know, but more than anything, it's a prestigious position. And thankfully, they, yeah. they kind of let the department do what the department does. And, you know, so you look at 1935, there was 400 deer. This year, we killed just over 250,000. That's incredible. Right? 85 years of restoration efforts. And now we have an estimated population of 1.3 million. In Missouri, we got 6 million residents and 2 million of them hold a fishing license. That is the That's state good. I want to live in, you know? That's good. We've got elk restoration happening. Our bear population is surging. I like the fact that we've restored all the species that belong on our land. Not all, but many of the species that belong on our landscape, whether or not they bring controversy or not. Otters. Tell somebody down here you like an otter, and it's like cussing their mother. You know, it's like, <laughs> how could you like an otter? Well, have you ever seen one swim? Have you ever heard them chatter with each other? Now, why wouldn't somebody like an otter? they eat fish. Oh, okay. So it's a selfish thing. Like, instead of looking at ourselves as, like, part of this continuous uh, evolution of all landscapes and the circle of life that we're in is just mm-hmm. like a, you know, an, it, we're an animal that somehow glitched in the matrix and became what we are and <laughs> have so much mm-hmm. more control of, mm-hmm. of everything else. But, you know, otters belong here. Otters yeah. have a role, right? And 
everything has its place. And that's, I think, where, you know, you look at these hunters and anglers that I grew up with that I said I was a hunter and angler before I became a conservationist. And I probably could have been sold on that idea too. Like, kill the otters so there's more smallmouth for me to fish. But now I look at it like, that otter has just as much right to that smallmouth as I do, and I want that circle to be complete. Yeah. I want the, if the otter wasn't there, there'd be a hole in the puzzle. Yeah. The picture wouldn't be complete. Yeah. So that's how I, I look at things now. And, and then I hope people go out and trap otters, you know, and harvest them legally and ethically. Yeah. You know, that's just the whole cyclical thing. Okay, here's the question. Without getting political, why... Why are hunters generally not the first ones banging on the door about environmental issues? And I am as, well, without getting political, I was about to say something political. I mean, I'm as conservative as they come in in a whole lot of ways, and it just doesn't even make sense. And typically, you know, the conservative people would be the, would be the, the rural people, the hunters, we're the ones that are in the environment, yet we're the ones that are usually... Can you answer that question without being too political? <laughs> I, can a- I can answer that question very easily. What did I tell you just a few minutes ago? Ignorance? No. The answer to your question is... Aware. I've already forgotten. Engagement, being aware. I've already forgotten. Rewind the tape. Money. 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 Okay, okay. okay. So environmental activism brings regulation that stifles economic growth historically which is when we transition this conversation to race line i'll be able to explain to you why i'm so excited about what we're doing because it's a market-based solution to dealing with environmental challenges yeah yeah so when you you talk to a farmer or a landowner about the clean water act and what that means for their operations and the potential fines and 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 recourse that they can have for you know something happening off of their land or waterways they're scared to death, you know, and it's the same thing with a guy that's in construction. You know, he runs into a small wetland and now construction is halted. Now, you and I and many of the people listening probably want that wetland to be con- conserved. But at the same time, now you're stopping a project from moving forward. So air pollution, you know, with the fact that we run on fossil fuel in this country and people are adverse to change. So coal has worked for a long time. But it doesn't really work anymore. You know, both candidates in the last election were trying to go around coal country talking about how they were going to bring it back. You know, and the president made a big point of that. Coal's not coming back. It's just not. You know, new coal plants aren't being built. My friends that all work in utility divisions are looking for renewable sources of energy. It's just the direction that we're going. And and people drag their feet on change. And uh, because it's what we know, it's what pays the bills at home. Uh, so it all comes back to your economic security. And mm-hmm. it makes and sense. I got a, one of my best friends, you know, a guy named Charlie. Uh, we had this conversation about climate change, which I'm seriously concerned about. And I, there's no denying it's not happening. 80% of people in America believe it's happening now. Mm-hmm. I was just a guest of Congressman Billy Long, who is the congressman from Springfield, Missouri, a staunch Republican, former auctioneer, friend of Johnny Morris at Bass Pro Shop. And he's on the House Energy Committee, and uh, he asked me to come up and make a presentation to members of Congress on this committee at kind of a 
a showcase that they were having in the Rayburn building of the United States Capitol. And it was great. I took my daughter and it was like a couple of days in Washington with her, but it was all Republicans talking about how they want to address climate change now in a market-based approach, meaning mm. that there's ways that we can do this without stifling economic growth. Yeah. So I'm not being political. I'm just being factual and saying that yeah. the Republican Party is the party that has really held up you know, the changes. And that's right. because their people typically are the rural people that are mostly afraid of those economic hardships that come with that shift, or at least that yeah. time of shifting. Yeah. And uh, and now they can't deny climate change anymore. Just from yeah. just from a pure political stance of like, okay, our constituents, our voting block believes in climate change. Eighty percent of Americans now have been proven to believe in it. What's our new narrative going to be? And the new narrative of the Republican Party is the narrative that I've been running with all along. You know, which I feel like I'm a man without a party. You know, often I just. Like I vote a split ticket. I'm researching my candidates. I'm trying to figure out who's best for my interests. And I think that's mm -hmm. what everybody should do. What's best for your interest? And my interests are my economic security, uh, the health and wellness of my family and those close to me and really all citizens of the state and country. And then uh, conservation in the outdoors, like who's good on those, those issues. Um, but it, it's great to see that we're aligned now, right? We're aligned on the fact that the problem exists, yeah. both parties. And, and you know, that's, that's the course you want to take to solving any major problem is first accepting the fact that there is a problem. Mm -hmm. So it's taken us a long time to get over that hurdle, but we're there. Mm -hmm. And now as a, as a country and a society and ultimately as a globe, as a, a global economic society, like we got to work together to come up with solutions, but we got to put people to work while we're doing that. And we can't just go shut down a coal mine or go shut down a coal plant today. Yeah. You know, it's, it's got to be a process. And that's why you're seeing all these regulations come in that greenhouse gases are going to be reduced by 25% by 2030 or 50% by 2050. Mm. And, you know, and, and it seems like a long time to those of us that are sitting here thinking in 2050, I'm going to be 70. Yeah. But in 2050, babies are going to be born that are going to live for 100 years too. So Yeah. You know, it's a shame that the political process and the temperature of this country is so polarized because to, to talk about environmental issues, people, I mean, there's people right now that are probably thinking, oh, you know, this is left wing stuff. <laughs> and it's really pretty bizarre. Or to think that because you care about environmental issues, you want to get rid of guns. I mean, it's almost like the two, you know, the polarization comes with like all this different stuff. And that's what's bizarre. And that's what, that's what's, uh, uh, you know, I mean, that's what's a shame is that, you know, to, to, to talk about caring about the environment means that, you know, you're, you're one direction real far or the other. And it's just kind of bizarre because as hunters, man, I want that stream to be clean. I also am not a tree hugging hippie that's crazy that, doesn't understand reality and I, I i'm i'm not enticing I, what i want to do is set you up to talk about what you do brandon and uh you know that's all i'll say about that i mean just we we really do have to not be too polarized i mean that's the that's the temperature of the country is polarization either side and we've especially as conservationists and hunters i mean yeah the 
our rights to keep and bear arms are so critical and powerful, and we got to do anything to save that. Also, our right to have brownie bass down this stream because it's not being, you know, polluted is equally as important. So I, I love confusing people. I do it all the time. I, so as the executive director of CFM, I was essentially the chief lobbyist for conservation in the state of Missouri. So I was in the Capitol working with legislators, but I was also very much out front in public interface, going around the state, giving conservation talks. The first thing that I think people aren't aware of is that conservation and environmentalism are not symbiotic. It's not right. the exact same thing. A lot of the environmentalists, those in, say, like the Sierra Club or, or some of these very well-established left-wing uh, type of environmental right. organizations, they're important. They're doing good work. They're, they're pushing us in one direction. And then you've got, you've got you know, the complete opposite of them, the anarchists that want no regulation, and they're pulling us in a different direction. But conservation, the very simple definition of conservation is the wise use of our resources, right? So like when I bought this property, I hired a forester to come in here and mark the trees for me to do a select cut. Some people would think you're going to buy this beautiful forested property and cut the trees down. Well, some of those trees are ready to be harvested. Those trees are a renewable resource mm -hmm. that have value economically that allows me to have this property. So I did, yeah. a, I did a timber harvest and, you know, I took about 25% of what I spent on this property back in and that allowed me the down payment to build the cabin. Right. Yeah. So, so it, it's the, utilitarian conservation. It's the, the wise use of our resources, yeah. using our natural resources in a sustainable way to make sure that we perpetuate them into the future, but also reap the rewards of them today. So I'll go in and talk, and, and it could be like I, I'll do a talk to any size of group from 500 people to 10. And it could be, you know, 75-year-old cat ladies, or it could be, you know, a group of bulldoze driving, beer drinking, deer hunting men. And uh, it'll surprise the cat ladies that I own probably 50 firearms. You know, they think I'm great until they find out that I hunt, and I'm a staunch supporter of the Second Amendment and, and a, a big-time firearm enthusiast, right? And then I'll go talk to the bulldoze driving, beer-drinking guys. We'll just start talking about all these different calibers, and, and they're like, this guy's not bad. And then I'll bring up the Clean Water Act and the fact that I want <laughs> I want there to be regulations on, on water. And then it's like, damn it, he tricked us. Yeah, You know, it's like people can't understand that you can have both. Yeah. And I'll tie the creek even closer to home, like not just the fact that we got smallmouth in there to go down and catch but like i run that water through my my cabin is for the shower and the toilet and and like you asked me this morning like can i brush my teeth with that yeah like what a shame that we have to have that concern that our water is too polluted to brush your teeth with but you asked me if i've ever gotten the beaver fever yeah so far no you know like it's coming yeah. out of a spring creek that bubbles up in the holler back about a mile and a half there's no livestock between me and and and, mm, the, and the spring the waters yeah. so i take my chance we don't drink it like we drink culligan water or bottles of water but uh, we certainly use it for the shower and the toilet and the sinks yeah. and stuff like that wash the yeah. dishes with it and i just love the fact that i feel confident and that that water is clean enough to do that with but i also 
hate the fact that most water is not. Yeah, yeah. Well, go into, tell me, so, you know, this whole idea that money and uh, economic stability is often the thing that keeps, makes people afraid of environmental stuff, which makes total sense. Tell me what you guys are doing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just beyond thrilled with the new role that I have uh, and, and the man that I'm working for. Um, I'm the director of communications for a company called Raceline Alternative Energy. And Rudy Raceline is our founder. I met Rudy through the Conservation Federation. Uh, a good story, in fact. There's a man named Frank Oberly. And, and Frank is just one of the, he's just a unicorn, you know, and so is Rudy. And when those two types of people meet, you know, magic can happen. And Frank, um, he was a machine gunner on the side of a helicopter in Vietnam, which was the most deadly job you could have over there, the highest casualty rate. Mm. And we, of course, did not treat our soldiers well when they came back from Vietnam. It wasn't, you know, we still need to do so much more today for our for our military veterans. But uh, I do believe, and I think most would concur, that they have it better than the guys coming back from Vietnam did. And Frank obviously had PTSD and issues that he dealt with, and he found his solace in nature. He became a world-renowned photographer. He was on staff at Life Magazine, at the, the peak mm. of Life Magazine. He was selling images to um, ad agencies in New York. Like He was a photographer for the Mad Men era. Mm. And, and eventually he burned out on the photography and took some of his money and bought a little over 500 acres of basically destroyed land in north central Missouri outside of Kirksville and he restored it all to native prairie and mm. then he started a, a seed collection company called Pure Air Natives and he became kind of this like godfather of of native prairie tall grass prairie restoration well somehow his path intercrossed with Rudy Raceline I believe it was at the Missouri Prairie Foundation and and Rudy was already a very successful businessman he he was an immigrant to America when he was seven years old. His family was displaced after World War II and, and was sponsored by a family to come to St. Louis. And Rudy's just one of those mentally and physically tough human beings that refuses to fail. And he worked his way up through high school and, and athletics. And he was the captain of the 1967 St. Louis University National Championship soccer team. He's just one of those guys that's mm. successful his whole life because he works harder than anybody else and he outthinks everybody else. And he created a company eventually called Raceline and Associates, which today is the world's leader in the manufacturing or, or in the construction of manufacturing plants that make aluminum beverage cans. Mm. So he says, wherever you are in the world, on planet Earth, if you drink out of an aluminum beverage can, that there's an 85% chance it came off of an assembly line that Raceline and Associates built. Wow. So they've done 250 of these in over 50 countries, and he's world-traveled. I mean, he for 30 years, he was all over the world doing this. But again, his solace is found in nature, and he acquired this large farm up in northern northern Missouri, right by the Iowa border, and went to work on restoring it. And he, he does everything in this like engineered process in his mind. Like that's where he's made his money is being able to see how like a system can bring things together mechanically, but he also understands it naturally. For example, he developed an assembly line 
that like if you remember the beginning of for all of those our age and older if you can remember when Laverne and Shirley was a show and mm-hmm. it would open and there's like a bottle line and it's going like single file yeah Rudy figured out how to spread that out wider and he said I, one day I was just thinking about when a river flows downstream and it comes to a boulder the river doesn't shut down the river finds a way to work around that obstacle and then merge back behind it and he took that natural system and converted it to a mechanical process and created a new way of, of running an assembly line for when one line goes down, the rest of them will flow around it. Mm. So genius stuff that's rooted in his appreciation and understanding of nature. Mm. So then moving forward, he, he wants to do something to address the issues that we have environmentally in this country and in this world. And anaerobic digestion, which is a natural process that happens when oxygen is removed from the equation, is big in Europe. And Rudy's so well-traveled in Europe, he knows that this is something going on over there that should be being applied here. So he creates Raceline Alternative Energy uh, between two visions. One is Horizon One, which is the uh, anaerobic digestion of livestock manure to create renewable natural gas. And Horizon 2 is the anaerobic digestion of native prairie plants to create renewable natural gas. Horizon 1 is operating now. That's what uh, we're in the middle of finishing off these large-scale farms, CAFOs. So anybody familiar in your neck of the woods with what's gone on in the buffalo? And these are very environmentally contingent. What is, what is a CAFO? It's I a, don't know. It's a confined animal feeding operation. Okay, gotcha. So any any of these confined animal feeding operations with more than a thousand animal units. And there's environmental bans coming in on these. So it's, it's like, okay, we have a horrible problem that we have to solve. We have an exploding population in this world. That we've got to feed. That we've got to feed. But we've also got to take care of our planet sustainably. How do we do that? So these CAFOs aren't going away. No matter what health right. ordinance you put in not everybody's going to grow chickens in their backyard and garden like we we got a lot of people to feed 9.5 billion on this planet so how do we do it in a sustainable environmentally friendly way so what we've done is we've gone in and we've tarped over these lagoons and about 8,000 hogs are defecating and urinating into a single lagoon so these hogs like if you're picturing the kind of hog farm that i would have pictured growing up you're thinking of pigs rolling around in the slop and mud not the case at all. They're living on graded floors in air-conditioned and heated barns, and they're defecating and urinating through these slots that then goes into a trough and is flushed with water out into this lagoon. Historically, or, or still what's going on now in, in many instances, is that that uh, breaks down and the gases are emitted into the atmosphere. So a, a significant portion, like 27% estimated, of methane entering into our climate, which is significantly worse than CO2, is coming from livestock waste. Mm-hmm. We tarp over these giant lagoons. And methane is what we can burn as clean energy. Exactly. So what we do is we go in and we tarp over these lagoons. And anaerobic digestion, again, is a natural process of bacteria breaking down these solids. And it only happens when the water temperature is 60 degrees or higher. So our, our, our window is really like April through October. Hmm. for the natural process without heating it, uh, which we don't at this point. But those tarps will blow up like giant blimps, and then we suck that gas off, and it 
so like on like for example one farm might have 10 lagoons and each one of those blows up and each one of those has a compressor system that sucks that gas out from underneath that tarp to a centralized gas purification skid we clean that gas right there we flare off the undesirables the co2 and then we capture that methane in a pure renewable natural gas form and it's directly injected into the natural gas grid in North Missouri. Wow. So we've built. Now where does that natural gas have to be processed more before it can be used at no. your stove at your house? No, it's going in and mixing right now with. It's the same chemical compound. That's crazy, man. It's incredible, and it's very it's very lucrative at the moment because of some carbon credit opportunities in California in their low carbon fuel standard. So California has really led the way. Minnesota, New York. Colorado, uh, some of the more progressive states are, are following suit. But man, what's so beautiful about this is it's very agriculture and very rural community oriented, you know, and that's where the Republican Party is, is seeing an opportunity to really advance this. Mm-hmm. So Horizon One is happening. You know, we're, we we're, can't talk about California being progressive unless we dog them and slap them for their unprogressive stance on uh Hunting large carnivores, but go ahead. Yeah, they, they're surely not without their problems, <laughs> right? But they got some incredible duck hunting up in the Sacramento Valley that I'm going to get into. But long story short, they have what they call the low carbon fuel standard, which values your gas based on your carbon intensity score. So that is factored by how much carbon you're producing in the uh, in the production, transportation, and usage of your renewable fuel that's used in transportation. See, out there, they're running trucks on CNG. You can go compress natural gas. You can go to a gas station and fill up on compressed natural gas. UPS has converted like almost 200,000 of their fleet vehicles in California to run on CNG. Hmm. So they value your gas on this carbon intensity score. For example, ethanol, which is another biogas, another form of renewable energy, it values at about plus 80. We shattered the ceiling and the market coming in at negative 372. We have produced... The so cl- it's really high-quality, clean natural gas Yeah, well, coming from these solar it, farms. We don't use hardly any fossil fuels in the production or transportation of it. I see what you're saying. So we, don't, we have a negative carbon impact on the environment. Mm. And it, it's direct injected into the grid, and, and California values it based on an offset of fossil fuel usage yeah so that's horizon one and it's happening like we're profitable on that we produced 160,000 decatherms of renewable fuel last year horizon two is what the whole vision is about so in north missouri and a lot of the heartland agriculture has has pushed into marginal lands when people talk about like why don't we have quail it's because farms have, have gotten to the point of farming as many acres and as many square inches of of their landscape as they can and who can blame them right like that's their livelihood these are farmers just trying to make a living and we we look at like the economic reports on agriculture in this country and it's not easy to be a small farmer these days Mm -hmm. at all right Mm -hmm. so so what we found is that instead of looking for alternative solutions they just keep putting input costs like seed and tractors into these marginal lands and then there's multiple reasons one they don't know what else to do two uh crop insurance will let a, a marginal crop get failed and you can still get a, a return on it so that's not a good thing for anybody it's you know taxpayer funded and uh and, and 
we come in now with an alternative solution that is similar to the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP. Mm-hmm. CRP at its peak had 40 million acres enrolled. And now it's... And CRP, I, I, I want to let you talk and then I want to say it real simply because you did it yesterday and I think I understand in a real simplistic way. But let me stop you right there. CRP is when when the government is paying farmers not to farm sections of agricultural land. Exactly. So it's a, you're putting land that has previously been farmed into a reserve program and letting, you know, habitat friendly grasses and, and plants and shrubs come back. And it's supposed to be for creating a conservation reserve for wildlife and animals. What it really exists for is to set commodity prices on agricultural products. Like we can't overproduce, otherwise the prices drop, you know, to supply and demand. It's a very simplistic supply and demand. It's designed to help farmers be financially stable because if, is that right? By managing the cost and and value of their crops. Right. Like if me and you just overproduced corn to the point where we had more to sell than there were buyers for then our value of our corn would be dramatically reduced. And so all the work we did for the whole year would be right. worth nothing and we'd go bankrupt after the course of a few years. So the problems with agriculture doing this is the fact that they're farming hillsides. Like imagine like some Inca village in South America that you've seen old drawings of where they like, they stair step a hill. And in Missouri, we're doing it. It's called, it's called terracing. And, and what that causes is horrible runoff. So, Everything runs downstream. We're back to water quality. And the fact that, like, the, the Gulf of Mexico is dying. Again, science, right? The, yeah. This isn't a debate. 200 square mile dead space. Exactly. And that's because it's of probably all... probably bigger than that now. That's because of all the nitrogen and phosphorus that's coming off agricultural lands from every river and drainage in the Midwest. Yes. And it's all ending up at the mouth of yes. the Mississippi River. And it's eliminating a multi-billion dollar uh, economy down there around commercial fishing and recreation. So it's our fault for sending it downstream. But again, we got to have agriculture. So what do we do? Well, we institute nature's native sponge, which is prairie. So we bring back tall grass prairie and we plant along waterways and in marginal lands. The root systems of native grasses and plants will go 10 to 15 feet deep in the soil. They mm. absorb a lot of water and then they'll, they'll block. Imagine it's like a defense for our water systems. So these hillsides are farmed, but we're trying to take those farmed hillsides and put them back into prairie and then farm your prime acres, those profitable acres that are right. actually generating money for you above and beyond your input costs. And then we will enter into a long-term contract like CRP, like a 10-year contract with you to restore the prairie and then harvest it and feed it into above-ground anaerobic digesters and make renewable natural gas out of that as well. Mm. So we're going to be able to take farmers and landowners from just being into agriculture to also being into renewable energy production and then getting them into the carbon credit and water quality credit markets as well. So you, mm. can, you can go from being a corn and soybean farmer to being a corn and soybean farmer, a renewable energy producer, and a, a accredited basically uh let me let me describe to you what i'm hearing you say and then you tell me if it's right so i'm a farmer in missouri or wherever this is a national company so it could be anywhere but i'm a farmer in north north missouri i'm farming 1500 acres 900 acres of that 1500 is prime farmland 
It's flat. It's everything is right about it being profitable for growing agricultural crops. 600 acres of that is marginal farmland that I plant every year or put in CRP at different times. Um, And like you said, the insurance type stuff, like some farmers would plant stuff almost knowing that it was going to fail to collect insurance. That can happen. I mean, and maybe that's not the right way to say that. That's a bad way to say that. Um, It can happen. Yeah. And and, and I'm, I'm, okay, so you just told me I was wrong there, Brandon. That's okay. But what you guys are saying is that you'll take the marginal lands and pay the farmer to restore it back to native prairie. Yeah, we're not at the point yet to where I can say how much we can pay per acre. We're working with Iowa State to come up with the right mix that provides the most fuel for energy production, along with the most wildlife and ecological. So our VIN at Raceline is three-tiered. Energy production, ecological services, and wildlife benefits. So what's the best mix of these natives that'll give us energy production, protect our landscape, and protect our water, and provide critical habitat for wildlife. It's a symbiotic relationship with all these yeah. things working together. And then, then you're going to harvest the the native prairie grass, cut it, hay it, mm-hmm. put it into, and, and and you guys have the have the science and the ways to do this. But anaerobic digestion, like basically letting this grass rot, and the and the and the gases, methane gas from that, is being captured. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, that's pretty. It's pretty simple, and it makes sense. It's much more complex than than that in terms of how that's going to make money, how it's good for the farmer, how it's good for the land. But the but the idea is simple. You know, my degree is in environmental soil and water science, uh, and man, what is so powerful that really not a lot of people understand uh, is just the value of soil value of water quality and soil and uh you know when i was in college in the early 2000s university of arkansas when i learned about the 200 and 20 years ago it was a 200 square mile dead space where nothing lives where the mississippi river runs into the gulf of mexico that blew my mind blew my mind and it's all coming from you know the mississippi river drains this huge section of the u.s we're the breadbasket of the world. We have all this tillable acres, and basically inputs of nitrogen, phosphorus, and fertilizer goes onto all this land. Excess nutrients gets into the river, um, and then that flows down, and excess nutrients in water basically causes algal blooms and sucks up all the oxygen. And long story short, this is a you know it's a it's a very dynamic process when we're talking about water quality. But the idea of putting it back in native prairie is powerful. And it's, uh, and you know, sounds good to me, man. Well, if, we, if you look at the recent trends of flooding, we have had 100-year floods every year. So things have changed. And, and there's multiple reasons why climate change is part of it. But we've also degraded our soil and compacted our landscape, meaning that the traditional 
means of farming is, is you know plow and tillage and and then it, that compacts the soil down so we've we've drained our soil of the resources it needs the minerals and the nutrients by just taking and taking and taking I don't know how many people ever read that book when we were kids called The Giving Tree. But mm. it's like you can only take for so long until there's nothing yeah. left to take from. So we have to regenerate soil. We have to put nutrients back into it. Cover crops are a big part of that. But then cover crops could be viewed as simply an input cost by farmers trying to stimulate the quality of their soil. Cover crops are a big part of our component too. So really we'll be collecting renewable natural gas from livestock manure, from digesting native prairie plants, and then also digesting cover crops. So instead of leaving that field barren throughout the winter, and you've walked out on a hard, hard row crop field, it's like concrete. And then we get these torrential rains, and it just it's like raining on a parking lot. And then that yeah. rushes off into the river, and then it all comes downstream. And here in Missouri, where the Mississippi and the Missouri come together, we're at the end of that you know, Missouri River drainage, and we're getting flooded out every year because there's nothing left on the landscape to absorb this large amount of water that's coming down. And when that water rushes all the way down from North Dakota, South Dakota, through Nebraska, wherever, you know, it's coming all the way, it's bringing with it all the bad stuff that's rushing off of those fields. Like you said, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the pesticides, the insecticides. Yeah. So by instituting this renewable natural gas by instituting this native prairie buffer zone, uh, we'll be able to to stop a lot of that from happening, and but we'll also make it a market based approach by generating a profit off of turning it into right. renewable natural gas. And that's what's pretty cool about this is, I mean, this is all private sector stuff. It's all market based. We, yeah. we are a market based so solution. It's, it's got to make money. It's got to make gotta money, be, or it doesn't happen. Yeah, and that's good. It's capitalism. Yeah, you know, I'm a capitalist. I believe in that system, you know, and uh, and I'm proud to be part of a system that I know is bringing great value to our landscape and to the people that live there, um, as well as as making money. And that's another thing that we're super proud of is we've got about 20 young men right now, and I'd like to say young men and women, but none of the young women in the area have signed up to slosh around in pig shit yet. So (laughs) not that the guys do either, but they're on top of the tarps and stuff. But we've got a crew of young men that are educated and good workers that are now able to live on their family farm or in these very rural North Missouri communities. Because we're down here in the Ozarks and we talk about the economic depression. You know, you and I have talked at length about it that's going on in ag lands all across this country too you get up it ain't like people are rolling in it up in north missouri you get up to unionville green city green castle these little these little dots on the map they're struggling just like we are down here and and we're bringing jobs to that region yeah yeah (coughs) how let me ask you a question how so this is a this is an endeavor that's really never been done here at least like how far along are you guys in the process to where we you could know that this was going to work or not we're past the point of whether or not it'll work okay yeah the renewable natural gas coalition of which we're a, a leadership member <coughs> yeah sure i'm writing that one <coughs> The Renewable Natural Gas Coalition, of which we're a leadership member, five years ago had a meeting with 60 people there. 
The meeting we just had in December of 2019 had over 550. Mm. Every major oil and gas corporation was represented. I now have friends and colleagues at BP, Marathon. They're all looking for the sources that they need to meet their their goals of 10 to 15% renewable by 2030. Okay. Or whatever that goal may so be. So there's a demand for what's happening There's here. demand for what's happening. We are at the tip of the spear. What about the financial side of it? I mean, like, I know the science would work. I mean, everything that, I mean, and obviously I'm just here in the, 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 the surface of it. But I mean, you know, replanting prairies in the native grass, paying farmers for that through long-term contracts. I mean, that all sounds like good stuff. What about the financial side of it, Brandon? Is that, is that what is yet to be known if it's going to work? Well, currently it works because there is credit coming from government programs. That's the scary thing, right? We are reliant on these, these credits. Um, for example, when Volkswagen had that debacle with emissions and they weren't exactly truthful and they paid a big, big fine, a lot of that money went into an endowment that now pays for this renewable fuel. So like mm. our gas is significantly more valuable than an equal amount of fracked natural gas. Okay. But at what point do we invest in the future of our planet? Like at what point do we say we can produce this renewable energy, but at the same time we can do good things ecologically? So it's an investment at this point through through funds that will hopefully move it into a more mainstream, a more um, universally done process. Yeah. So that that is the concern, like that, and then we're open about that. You know, we're not hiding the fact that we're right now reliant on this California market, but Minnesota's coming uh, soon. We expect, and mm-hmm. I, I was just on the floor of the New York State Assembly, meeting only with Republicans. You know, and they're excited about this. They want me to come back to their district and and talk to farmers about it. But I think. I think big, you know, I, I struggle with details, which is why I'm here telling you about it while the really smart people are back at the office figuring out how to make it happen. Mm-hmm. But I can see this scaling down to the individual household. You know, we're right now digesting livestock manure into renewable natural gas that's going into the grid that's coming back to homes. Why don't we install digesters on the home to where when you use the restroom, it goes into that. When you dump your food scraps down, it goes into that. Any organic material that you have, like cardboard or paper plates, goes into that. And it digests and creates power to heat your own home. Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're not close yet to using all of our opportunities and resources. Yeah. But I expect that we're going to get there. We, yeah. have, we have to. Yeah. Well, you know, when we look at the challenges that conservation has faced in, in 2020, I just read a book by Valerius Geist and Shane Mahoney, North American Mile of Wildlife Conservation. And a big theme inside the book is that what has worked for the last hundred years in conservation is going to have to morph and change for it to work now. And it was kind of a surprise to me to hear that because we've we've had so much success restoring big game and saving wildlife and saving wild places over the last hundred years. We feel pretty good about ourselves. The new narrative inside of conservation is going to have to be environmental issues closer to home. And that historically has not been our narrative. And, and anyway, I, I just see kind of like, why are we talking about this on the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast? Because uh, we want bears to propagate into the future. And for that to happen, they have to have healthy habitat. That's absolutely right. You and know? I mean, you know, 
I man, I'm a southerner and 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 come from a uh, just to be frank, and nobody would be surprised with this. I mean, a very conservative political background, and and I know that people like hear anything about environmentalism and they think, oh, geez, left wing, crazy liberals coming to take my guns, and that mentality we just we just can't have. No, if if I mean to me, that's <clears throat> one of the challenges that we're going to have to adapt into our repertoire of thinking inside of inside of um, this new era of conservation is that we got to be the ones that are saying yeah we want our we, don't, we want our waters clean we want our soils and agriculture uh we want it sustainable we want farmers to make a living we want families to be able to keep their farms uh we want to find ways like what I'm hearing you guys talk about of of making agriculture better and I mean, you're doing it on both sides. You're doing it on the the crop agriculture side and on the meat production side, which is pretty amazing. Well, politics are so hard to, they are. to come to understand. I grew up in Northwest Indiana, which is essentially a suburb of South Chicago, and everybody knows about the Chicago Democratic machine. And my great grandfather started a, a floor covering company that my grandfather owned, and my dad and his brother owned, and it turned into a very large scale commercial floor covering company but it was union and unions typically vote democratic so i grew up in this like democratic environment where everybody around me voted democrats and these aren't like what you would think in today the way democrats are painted as these liberal you know blue-haired people driving subarus like these are construction workers crawling around on their knees kicking in carpet working their asses off and i mean that's how i was raised and then i get out to montana and you know, it's hunting and fishing and conservative values and living rule. And I became part of the young Republicans. My family's like, what happened to you? And then I started seeing, you know, things from both sides of the fence. And and like a pendulum, I feel like I've kind of swung both ways and settled right in the middle. But I pay attention a lot more than the average person. And most people just seem to assimilate to a party because there's one or two very important issues to them personally. And one or one party is better for that one specific issue than the other party. I don't know what the answer is, Clay. I, I know that the polarization is worse now than it's ever been in my life. We're not yeah. that old, you know, but there's obviously been times like the 1860s where it was pretty bad. So hopefully before it continues to get worse, we can start finding solutions to make it better. And that's what I love so much about what I'm doing at Raceline is because if I'm talking to a conservative you know, we are working on agriculture and agriculture economies, which are typically rural, and we're trying to find jobs, or we're trying to find people to fill jobs in rural communities, and, and we care about all that stuff deeply. We also care very much about our environment and the landscape and our water quality and the wildlife and fish that call those places home, and the Democrats are eating that up. So we can bring these people to the table and we can say we're serving your constituent needs and desires and we're serving your constituent needs and desires and we're doing it through a market-based solution that people profit from. And now every industry needs to start looking for those kind of opportunities mm -hmm. because they're out there. And, and we at Raceline are very fortunate that we work for a man that had the not only the vision but also the economic ability, the, the money – 
in layman's terms, to <laughs> pursue this. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, you know, I knew I wanted to go to work for Rudy Raceline when we were talking one day, and he said, I have enough money to buy any ranch in America. I could go be Ted Turner's neighbor and rock the rest of my years away, staring at a herd of elk grazing out in my meadow. But what good would that do the world? What good would it do for me to take all this knowledge I've accumulated and bottle it up and not put it to use to make this planet better for my grandchildren and their grandchildren? And that's when I said, sign me up, coach. I'm in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, interesting stuff, man. Interesting stuff. Really is. But it's all rooted in hunting and fishing for me. Yeah. You know, that's where this little snowball started rolling down the mountain. Exactly. And I've had jobs that I had no passion for. I had jobs that were just paying the bills. I had to make a real hard decision uh, with a one-year-old and a two-year-old at home. And my wife was staying home with them at the time. I walked away from a six-figure job to take a $40,000 job. Wasn't a good conversation with my dad. You know, my irresponsibility. and But I had this vision for what I could do in the space that I care about. And I, I just want to make sure that anybody out there listening, you know, Clay and I are, are doing this outdoor media stuff that I grew up watching. Never dreamed I could do it. Nobody ever told me. Nobody ever encouraged me. No one said you could be one of these writers that you read or you could be on TV or like Clay, make a video that 3 million people have watched. So whatever it is that you're passionate about, you can do it. You really can. And if that's outdoor communication or building a rocket ship, you know, I just want you to hear in a broad sense that you can do it. I'm encouraging you to chase that passion and make the world a better place. Yep. Awesome, Brandon. Well, thanks for having me up here. Thanks for showing me this part of the Ozarks. I'm so glad you made it. I've wanted to have you up here for a long time. Uh, I was a fan of yours before I was fortunate enough to become a friend. Uh, Open door (laughs) policy, man. You are welcome here. I really hope you'll come back in the summer and bring your family. Um, Do some swimming in the creek and some floating on the river. And and I'll come down and see you in Fayetteville, too. That's a beautiful part of the country that you live in. Yep, yep. Got to see the global headquarters. Bear Hunt Magazine. (laughs) Well, hey, all this stuff, all this stuff we're doing, I think is for this reason, because we want to keep the wild places wild, because that's where the bears live. Thanks. And other critters. And thank you so much for the bear grease. Oh, yeah. Fried fried crappie in bear grease. That's right. My new favorite. Yeah, man. Right on. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you, Clay. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, 
Make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.